Hello to you all and welcome to the Pitcast by us here at the Pit Crew Online. From the fans, for the fans. Last weekend was the inaugural Tuscan Grand Prix taking place at the ever-beloved Mugello circuit, famous for hosting many other championships, mainly MotoGP. But this year hosted a Formula One race uh, as part of the revised COVID-19 pandemic schedule. Um, It was quite an interesting race, to say the least. Uh, So here to talk about it, I have three people who also contribute to the Picker Online. I am Luca. First up is our deputy editor, James. Hi, Luca. Excited to be talking about another mad race in Italy. Yeah. Uh, We also have our de facto lawyer, Rhea. Hi, Luca. Hi, everyone. Hello. And our stat man, Chris. Good evening, all. You got there eventually. I was a bit panicky there that you had muted yourself. All right. So before we get into talking about the, um, the Tuscan Grand Prix, so it was Ferrari's 1,000 race. And as of now, obviously, Ferrari gone through a bit of a, a slump, to say the least. Um, uh, it was still a very notable uh, occasion for them, regardless of how, how well they're doing. But perhaps in, a, in an effort to overshadow that, their departing driver, Sebastian Vettel, the four-time champion, it was confirmed on Thursday, I think, or Friday, that he was going to be moving to Aston Martin, which will be which is what Racing Point will be rebranded as as of 2021. Uh, he'll be partnering off with Lance Stroll, no surprise there, considering his dad owns the team, and he'll be replacing the ever-highly-rated Sergio Perez. Um, there's, a, there's a lot to talk about here, so I'm going to first throw it to James. James, what do you have to say about this, um, this well, worst-kept secret in F1? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think any of us saw that coming at all, did we? Um yeah, I think the the most notable thing for me was the timing of the announcement. I can't help but wonder if that was a little bit of a um, swipe at Ferrari, given it was their 1,000th Grand Prix. Um, yeah, I am looking forward to seeing what Vettel can do there. I think um, it made me think a little bit about when he moved to Ferrari in 2015, when he had that kind of the really rough year at Red Bull before then. Um, and when he moved to Ferrari, he had that kind of that spring in his step. And I'm hoping that he gets that at Aston next year. Um, you know, coming into this new project with a lot of momentum, a lot of ambition behind it. Yeah, I'm hoping we see a rejuvenated Vettel next year. Yeah, um, I wrote an article, which um, I'm very surprised I haven't yet got any hate mail for, uh, talking about the whole Vettel move. And uh, I do mention in it that in 2015, when he did move to Ferrari, he somehow managed to take three wins during the height of Mercedes' dominance on pure pace, um, which could bode well for maybe next year when Vettel ends up moving to Aston Martin, um, he could very well bring the team up quite a bit. And I think that's exactly what they need and exactly what he needs at this moment. Ouch. What was that? <laughs> I heard a big, like, swipe in my ears. <laughs> okay, right. No, we'll, we'll, we'll never mind about that. So, Rhea, what do you have to say about all this? Um, again, not, not a surprise. Um, I think the timing um, overshadows certainly the celebrations right up to the weekend for Ferrari. But I'm, I'm pleased for Vettel. Um, as, as sad as I am for Perez, um, and what a team he and Vettel would have made had they both been at Aston uh, next year. But um, as sad as I am for Perez, I think that this is exactly what Sebastian Vettel needed. But it is also probably what Formula One needed. Um, multiple world champions on the grid next season. Um, it's going to be exciting. Um, I think Vettel gets the opportunity to do something very different with Aston Martin. The pressure of stepping into a team like Ferrari is not going to be there. He's going to almost have a blank slate to try and help build this team to being um, a team that can compete not just for podiums, but potentially four wins in the um, 2022 season, certainly when um, the budget caps and all of the other things start coming into play as well. I think Vettel's positioned himself quite well. So I'm really looking forward to seeing what he can do and hopefully imparting some knowledge onto Lance Stroll as well. Um, certainly you could see the next generation coming in. So looking forward to it. I, uh, I, I must say there, in regards to Perez, like, I mean, everyone's sort of like saying that because of when Force India went into administration, um, he was the one that sort of started that legal action, which gave them enough time to get the invest the investment consortium. I can't say it, consortium. 
I think I've got, I think I got it. The consortium of uh, of Lawrence Stroll and to buy into the team, and now right as soon as it looks like that things are on the way up, he's been given the the boot. And Perez, I don't want to talk about him in a, in the same way we'd be talking about Nico Hulkenberg last year, but I'm I'm a bit worried now that maybe even with all of Perez's money, like even if he does like potentially get a seat at the likes of Alfa Romeo or uh, or Haas if at some point he's just he's just going to be fed up of racing in the in the upper or lower portions of the midfield uh, Chris where do you see oh hang on James did you want to say something oh uh, yeah I was just going to jump in on that the it's quite an interesting thing in Perez's statement when he announced he was leaving the team was he said he'd like to stay in Formula One but it depends on um, a project that gives him that motivation and you've got to think when he's getting offers from probably Haas or Alfa Romeo, you've got to wonder if that is enough motivation for him to stay in F1. And it would be sad to see him go on those terms, but yeah, if he gets a better offer from somewhere like IndyCar or the WEC perhaps, maybe even Formula E, um, yeah, whether that would tweak his interest more than kind of running around near the back of the grid. Yeah, I did um, I did hear apparently Pato Award from McLaren's IndyCar team said that he really wanted Vettel in there. I mean, that would be a pretty good sick pairing. Well, <laughs> trio, because they also have Askew. Uh, Chris, um, did you want anything to add to regards to Perez or Vettel? Well, um, it was a pretty much awful timing, but you could see why they'd done it. Ferrari um, were one of the teams that claimed they broke <laughs> the rules. So you can see why they announced it at that specific time. Um, with... Uh, say it could be similar to when Hamilton moved to Mercedes. I'm not saying Aston Martin are going to be the world dominators in 2022 when the new rules come in, but you never know. Um, it's just maybe the spring and a step that he needs, but you wouldn't get the all the knowledge that Vettel's had over the last, since 2008, uh, with say a Hulkenberg or um, a Perez, for example, that the Aston Martin team would need to develop further. Um, so, great knowledge and great mind. So, it'll be good for the team and good for the driver. Um, and on, on Perez's front, um, there was a poll out. Most team maybe staying in F1, but yeah, um, maybe IndyCar because it'd be close to their home. And that was when he caught coronavirus as well. Um, he went home to see his mother because his mum was feeling unwell. So, there's various balances on the front of is it he'd be staying in F1, but will he be stay, staying into going back to the Americas to? be close to the family yeah I, I would I would like to because I know there's the, the rumours apparently that the Mexican F1 Grand Prix might actually not happen after this year I mean obviously it's not happening this year but now it's probably not going to happen next year so maybe Perez moving to to IndyCar could change the um, well IndyCar IndyCar could inherit the round at the Autodromo Hamas Rodriguez now, so um, now now that we got that out of the way, let's talk about this mad Tuscan Grand Prix. Uh, it on the surface of it, Hamilton won, Bottas second, but it wasn't that straightforward. Let's go through the beats one by one. So even before we got off the grid, Max Verstappen had a bit of pre-race drama, a bit like in Hungary. Some internal unit seemed to to like cause a bit of a panic, uh, and they tried to like and quickly fix that um, and then they thought it was all over and done with and then the actual start itself Verstappen got a decent getaway looked like he was about to pass Hamilton and then his car just seemed to forget to breathe like it just like everyone overtook him and then literally one corner later uh, the the infamous turn two it seems at Magello where in a lot of the support races you had like so much in the way of sandwiching in those corners Vettel got, uh, Vettel, sorry, Verstappen. Verstappen got rear-ended by Raikkonen, who was trying to fight over the same piece of track with Roman Grosjean, and Pierre Gasly, who also retired one week after his, after his beloved victory. Um, so Verstappen really didn't have a good time of things. He barely got to make it round one lap, uh, or even like a few hundred metres before his car went pop, basically. Um, he, he could have actually have contended for the win in this race, considering the madness that ensued. Uh, James, do you want to take this? Uh, yeah, so I I remember when I was commentating on Twitter on the race and I saw Verstappen, you know, going alongside Hamilton at the start 
and then suddenly he was in the middle of the pack and I thought wait what what's gone what's happened where's he gone um and you could see on the some of the onboards at the start um he got a brilliant start but then you could see the red light on the back of the car um flashing on as if his engine was um as if he's in like the wrong engine mode or something he was harvesting like what happened with Nico Rosberg in Spain in 2016 um and I believe at the start of the race, Red Bull said it was some kind of software issue with the engine. Um, so, yeah, it does sound like they managed to fix it enough for it to go, but not enough for the problem itself to disappear. Um, so it was a real shame for him. And like you said, he could have been a contender for the win. Um, yeah, so we had that big crash on the first lap and then the safety car came out, um, which led to... <laughs> yes, which led to... What did it go away on lap seven was it um it was heading into lap eight yeah yeah so we then had barely a few laps um under the safety car the race got well was meant to get underway again but before bottas even got to the start line a huge pile up ensued behind him i'll take the lead on this one so you had (laughs) bottas uh, who had passed hamilton at the start um in quite quite convincing fashion um, the, the nature of the Magello circuit, because it's all very much high-speed undulating corners, you want it to be set up so that you have like as much downforce as possible. However, because of the very long and sweeping last corner and onto a really long straight that even has some elevation change, it was definitely going to um, mean that Bottas, whoever the leader was, would want to wait until the last possible moment for the um, to be able to go. And now the, there is some confusion as to where the rules work in this regard. So you've got uh, when when the safety car lights go out in like the beginning part of sector three, uh, like timing sector, <clears throat> you have to like just slug the pack down to your own pace. And then I remember a couple of years ago in GP2 at Azerbaijan, <laughs> 2016, I think it was Nobuharu Matsushita. Uh, in his first season in the championship with uh, with ART. And he was taking it really slow, waiting for like the, the right time to bolt, right, timing it right. And then he went for it, saw that the safety car, he was going to catch the safety car too late, put on the anchors. Now, obviously Bottas didn't do this, but it does sort of highlight the, the need for some clearer clarification on this. No interpretation made for the rules. He climbed on the anchors and Magnus behind him, crashed it to the law, and <laughs> Bottas didn't do that per se, but a lot of the drivers behind him were just sort of like wanting to get the jump. I do it on the F1 games all the time. You're just, just hanging back behind when there's a VSC. You want to try and like lengthen the delta a bit, like, and then just sort of like start accelerating and then for it to go great just in time for you to be able to pass your competitor. And the, what, what happened? There was like 12 drivers were punished for this. The drivers that were caught up in it and were out were the likes of Kevin Magnussen, Carlos Sainz, who spun at the start as well, uh, going into turn three and clipped by Vettel. Um, Nicholas Latifi and who did I mention there? Was it Antonio Giovinazzi? I think. Yeah, yeah Giovinazzi as well. So um, there needs to be some, because so, so many p- different people have varying opinions as to who was at fault for that, if, whether it was Bottas, because I think. Was it you, Chris, that mentioned whilst Channel 4 or uh, some other broadcaster was saying that was Bottas's fault, but then on Sky they were saying it wasn't and Bottas did it just fine and it wasn't his fault at all. Uh, there definitely needs to be some kind of um, diff- like changes to, the, to these rules because they're definitely a bit vague. What I was saying was that uh, BBC was saying it was Bottas's fault, but then on review um, looked at it and said that the safety car lights were out too late so they said the safety car should have gone around one more time to give him more space to build the gap for the safety car to go in um and then brundle on sky was like oh he's done it perfectly well if he'd done it perfectly there wouldn't have been a mass onslaught of four cars going into each other on this on the pitch straight um and channel four were just like well carnage like okay that didn't go that didn't go to plan did it so <laughs> um because I, I listen to the radio because I don't have uh, Sky Sports um, uh, channel, so dedication. And then I watch Channel 4 highlights and then um, 
watch the Sky just to see what what other person's uh, opinions are because uh, I don't I'm not I'm not fond fond of the uh, commentators from Sky so <laughs> fair enough. Um, I do because we didn't really mention it earlier. I, I know there was a thing about Verstappen you wanted to mention, which I think a lot of people will be very surprised by. Oh yes, uh, so you're saying about Verstappen challenging for the win, uh, and I think he'd have made it to the end. I think they'd have probably parked the car, or you never know because this may or may have not happened. Um, I think they'd have parked the car maybe lap three or four um, with, with the software glitch that uh, Hamilton over his career has 23 retirements. Um, and he's been racing since 2007, so he's in his 13th uh, or 14th year of his career now. And then Verstappen's got 22, so um, he's currently uh, only one away. So we're talking about Hamilton being one away from Schumacher's uh, never, everyone thought would be beaten win record. Uh, Verstappen's one, one away from beating Hamilton's record of uh, retirements. Um, and so they call Verstappen lucky for coming into all these wins. But it seems to be the car always fails on him. They're not always crashes. Yeah. Well, uh, going back to the whole safety car incident, uh, Ray, I want you to take the lead on this one. Um, so quite interesting um, about Hamilton making the comment on the radio, team radio during the race, um, also laying the blame squarely on the safety car light situation. And it's quite interesting to see that one of the other channels may have also thought the same. Um, for whatever reason, whether whether Hamilton had realised they might have been a bit slow at the front, but that's certainly something that he picked up on. But um, rumour mill, and, and I stress, this is just the rumour mill, um, everyone's trying to make sense of it. Um, there's some video evidence of, of our favourite, George Russell, potentially being the driver that triggered everything by giving himself space and then going, uh, leaving it at least as a, a quite a bit for gap to the sort of the pack in front of him and then going, which may have been the domino effect behind him. So, um, you know, I think everyone is going to have a different opinion as to who caused this particular um, incident. Is it Bottas? Is it George Russell? Is it the drivers at the back not being aware? Is it the safety car? Um, it just highlights the need for there to be some specific rules about what is allowed and what is not allowed under a safety car restart. Um, bear in mind though that Mugello is a unique track and the characteristics of this unique track had a role to play in what happened because had it not been a track like Mugello, uh, Bottas would not have feared the slipstream as much certainly and probably wouldn't have backed up as much as he did. So um, I think there are numerous factors at play here and, and certainly the nature of the track is one of them. Yeah, um, I do think that there should be, because there was a bit of um, suggestion that, there were, because there was a green light, which to a lot of the drivers would be considered as, you can go from here, but uh, typically in racing, when you see a green light, it means just go as soon as like it flashes on. And so they need, I think, uh, considering how much of a snail's pace they were going up until the last possible moment, do we think that there has to be some rules changed to say this is what you have to do with a safety car restart? Because I'm of the belief that when you the, um, the the line that you have just before entering into the pit lane, that's where you should go from. Um, I know Michael Schumacher got into trouble for that in 2010 at Monaco when on the last lap he passed Fernando Alonso. Um, and so maybe they changed the rule since then. But I think unless it's the last lap, you should be able to go from there, regardless of the situation. Um, James, what do you make of that? Um, yeah, so regarding the... Um, I can hear myself echoing somewhere. Well, I can't hear you, so what player in the backup? Oh, fair enough. Button, is it? Uh, no, so long as it's not coming through anywhere. Go on then, carry on. Yeah, so yeah. regarding the um, where you can overtake from, um, obviously it did used to be the rule that it was the the last safety car line, which is where the pit entry is. Um, but that's since been changed. I can't remember what year that was now. So it's when the safety car comes into the pits at safety car line one, that's when the lead car takes over from the safety car. But there's no overtaking allowed before the, um, what they call the control line or the start finish line. Um, but I think, I think Raya brought up quite a few good points there in that there was so many variables at play in this, which is probably why there's so much debate over who was at fault. Um, 
I think the you know the track layout, like Ray said, is is unique at Mugello, where you've got quite a long straight and quite a long distance between that first safety car line and the start line, um, with such a powerful slipstream effect down into turn one. So whichever driver was at front, and we saw this throughout the support race as well, they're going to leave as much time as possible and go at that last possible minute so that they eliminate as much chance of slipstream as they can. Um, but yeah, I, I spent a lot of um, a lot of time since the race trawling the internet for onboard footage from as many drivers as I could find on the grid. Because um, I, yeah, I heard a lot of people saying that it was Bottas's fault and I didn't quite buy that just purely because of the fact that he seemed to be going at a constant pace and the crash seemed to happen without any kind of, you know, any kind of action from him or the other leaders. Um, and you can hear when you're watching Bottas's onboard that he does maintain that constant pace from the minute he takes over from the safety car, you know, even as he's weaving on the track to keep the tire temperature, the engine note stays exactly the same. Um, so he's doing, yeah, what he should be doing in the rules, which is keeping a constant pace. He's not accelerating and braking. Um, but yeah, as again, as I said, Russell seemed to be, um, he was perhaps the driver that, I'm not going to say he caused it because it's not as clear cut as that, but he, as he was coming up on the start finish straight, he had quite a big gap between himself and Ocon and Kvyat in front. Um, and as they were coming up on the straight, he sort of, he went a bit to try and close up that gap to get closer to Ocon. Um, and there were a couple times, maybe once or twice, where he sort of drew alongside Ocon, seeming to anticipate that the leaders were going to go for it and then realised that they didn't and had to kind of pull back a bit, which obviously created a bigger gap between him and Ocon than he wanted. So he sort of went forward again and then stopped again. And you just had that same effect kind of amplified the further down the grid you went because every driver further back obviously couldn't see what the leaders were doing. So they'd see um, the driver in front Russell, for example, going a little bit and they think, oh, we're going and they'd go and then stop. And then someone behind would see them going. And you just had this knock on effect where I think Latifi said in the media pen afterwards, like he couldn't see what the leaders were doing. So his only reference point was the few cars ahead of him that he could see. And he saw one and thought they were going. So he went for it um, and realized then that Magnussen just ahead of him hadn't gone. So you then had this, um, that kind of horrible moment where Latifi jerked out to the side of Magnussen to avoid his car. Giovinazzi, just behind, had nowhere to go, couldn't um, see Magnussen, wasn't going at racing speed until the last minute. And then you had Sainz going into the back of them as well. Um, but yeah, I think, like I said, there's there are so many variables at, variables at play, like with the design of the circuit, the fact that you had this kind of knock-on effect going back. I wonder as well, just the fact that these drivers have never well, most of them had never raced at Mugello before. If it's just the case of, you know, however many driver's briefings they've gone through, if just in the heat of the moment, there was a bit of uncertainty about quite where the, you know, how long the distance was between the safety car line and the start-finish line. Um, yeah, and the, uh, the point that Hamilton made about the safety car lights, I know that the stewards have refuted that. Um, there have been a couple drivers, actually, that have said about the safety car lights going off too late and that being the cause, and the stewards have said... That's absolutely not what's happened. Um, I think they pointed to an F to one of the F three races where they had a safety car period and said the same. The lights went off at the same period there, and the drivers navigated it fine. But I oh, wonder yeah, but if those cars are smaller and don't require as much warming up. Exactly, and I wonder if there's been a few comments from teams and drivers this year that the safety car lights have been going out later than usual, um, with suggestions that perhaps they're doing it to try and get like a bit more of a. Um, obviously not crashes at the restart, but a bit more of an interesting restart than you normally would have done. So have less time to prepare. Exactly. And I wonder if that was it, that the lights just went out so late that the drivers thought they were going around for another lap. And so they hadn't like closed up the gaps as they normally would have done. And you had this effect where a driver like Russell, for example, had a bigger gap that you had to accelerate quite quickly to close up in time. Because I was watching Latifi's on board as one of the ones I watched and going through the final corner before the finish straight, he almost went into the back of Magnussen then, I think, because, you know, there seemed to be some confusion about whether they were going on for another lap or not. It seemed to be that Magnussen was kind of backing off a lot more than Latifi thought he should have been. And he had to take avoiding action to go 
um, not to go into the back of the house then. So yeah, it's, I don't quite know what rules you would change. Um, I don't, unless there was something like a kind of minimum um, or maximum. Yeah, unless there's something like a kind of minimum speed that the leader had to do, I'm not quite sure what you would change to avoid that. I think it was just so many variables and factors coming together into into a big crash. Why don't they have like a, a set delta that they have to, to meet as soon as the safety car lights go out, maybe like mm. make it so it's like halfway through or three quarters of the way through like sector two. Um, and then they have to stick to that. And then the second they cross the either the start line or the safety car pit line, that's when they have to go. Like the whole field can go, but not overtake, but then they can just all set themselves up in a way so that they will all like have to keep the same distance. I mean, I, I wouldn't say a pit lane speed limit because that's probably too slow, but just a, some kind of distance where they can just keep an average lap time up in the final sector so that they can all go and have and it won't be as chaotic as, as, it, as, it, normally, as it was that we saw. The only rule is you don't have to, you, the leader can't overtake the safety car, like yeah. when it goes into the pits. That's why Bottas had to slow down enough to build the gap. Even if, the, even if he overtakes the safety car and it's going into the pits, he'd receive the penalty. That, that's why they're saying he's going out too late and why he's going so slow. And that's why all the weaving goes on and Russell had the big gap from them because Bottas bolted but realised, oh, I'm going to catch the safety car. So that's why Bottas had to slow again and that's why there was the big gap. It was a mess. <laughs> yeah, well, pretty much, yeah. So that, that's, at the end of the day, mistakes happen. Yeah. If you look at other, uh, other sports, IndyCar, you see it around all the time. NASCAR, you see it all the time with the way they do it. It's just, we're all human. We make mistakes and you, you live and learn. End of the day. <laughs> I'm glad we that's emphasized the live part. Go on, Rev. That's a great point, Chris. Um, no, you know, thankfully, nobody was injured. That's, that's something we have to be thankful about. It might be a very different conversation that everyone would be having now had a driver been injured um, and pro probably um, would have seen some sort of action against any driver, just you know, maybe needing to make a statement. So thankfully nobody was injured. Very interesting you speak about IndyCar because while we were talking, mm -hmm. I kept hearing the IndyCar spotters in my head, like warning them, oh, bosses are slowing, bosses are slowing. So, I mean, it's the first time I heard that in IndyCar, I thought it was very gimmicky, but given the fact that the likes of Latifi and, and even Magnuson says that a lot of the stuff were unsighted, um, what is the thought about having some sort of just for the restart, their little engineer whispering in the ear, all right. So Actually, that's a good point because we saw the likes of Ted Kravitz, who was, sit well, on the Sky coverage anyway, he was situated mm -hmm. on the top of the pit building. Mm -hmm. And it makes me wonder, should we, like, should they have, like, for safety car restarts spot because i don't know i know they're able to like have spotters for um for like rallycross when because the tracks are so short and ovals where you can literally see the whole track just within your peripheral vision but because i i i, I don't think they have spotters for like road courses in indycar because there's so much variables on on them so having them just for restarts it would it would work but i don't know maybe i think that's just like solving an issue which is even more solvable by just putting in some hard and fast rules that you can't exploit. Does everyone think of that? I'm always surprised they haven't that they haven't looked at spotters in F1. Um, yeah, even if it is just for safety car restarts, because there's so many times in the last few years that drivers have said, like Ray said, you know, I've been unsighted, couldn't see them in my mirrors, couldn't see what's going on over the giant rear tyres. Um, yeah, it does surprise me, like when you see them in IndyCar and they're just so prevalent, I think, why haven't teams in F1 tried that, even if it is just for the safety car restarts or for turn one at the start of the race? Yeah, they, they, they do need some, something. But well, regardless, this resulted in a red flag for the second time in two weeks. Um, <laughs> similar, I think the last time they had two red flags in consecutive races, like one race had a red flag, then the next one did, it was... Uh, Monaco and Canada 2011. Uh, so we're going back quite a few years. Um, but now, obviously, we have standing restarts. Um, and within this new rule that we only saw for the first time just last week, like we've seen a safety car start in Germany last year and then result in a standing start rather than rolling. 
but this was the first time we've had a race stoppage or uh, neutralized in with it uh, after the start for there to be a, a completely different one. So second restart rolls around and it's a complete role reversal. Um, Hamilton gets the jump on Bottas, goes completely clean around the outside and that was uh, the catalyst to some sort of like interwar uh, Mercedes, well not conflict as such, but you could tell Bottas was really wanting to, to get there. And I know we were just, Chris and I were joking earlier about him being Valtteri Bottles, just like last week. Um, but I think, is it fair that, to criticise him this much? Because you've got to remember, in the last two races, he was in qualifying sessions, he was within a, like less than a tenth or so of Hamilton. Like we're talking about Hamilton having like over 90 poles and probably win as much by, by about two weeks from now as much Schumacher uh, in terms of race victories. But the fact that Bottas is still within like a couple of tenths of him, it, it, it just does seem a bit, un, does it seem unfair that we criticise him this much? Who, who here thinks that the criticism against Bottas is unwarranted? Or am I alone on this? Go on, James. I, yeah, I think if you're, if the metric that you're using to measure Bottas's talent is Lewis Hamilton and Max Verstappen, then he's probably always going to come up short. But, you know, there's only one driver in F1 history who's um, been more successful than Lewis Hamilton. Um, and Max Verstappen is definitely a star of the future. So I think, yeah, he's not, he's obviously not at Hamilton's standard. He's obviously not able to match Hamilton wheel to wheel every weekend, sharing wins with him. But that doesn't mean he's a bad driver. Um, and I know that a lot, I, I reckon a lot of the criticism comes from just from the fact that people want to see Hamilton challenged um, and don't want to see him winning every weekend. And I understand that, but. Yeah, I think I, don't know, I think a lot of the criticism warranted uh levied at Bottas is unwarranted. Um just for the fact that, you know, he's not a six time world champion level driver, but who is other than Lewis Hamilton at the moment? Or Michael Schumacher before two thousand and four. Yeah. Um, Ray, what, what side of the fence do you fall on in this regard? So so I also think that a lot of the criticism levelled at, at- Bottas is largely unwarranted. Um, we're holding him to a standard that prior to Hamilton, only one other driver in Formula One history has ever met. Um, and it's taken many, many years for Hamilton to sort of get to the same point as that other driver, that driver being Michael Schumacher. Bottas is not a bad driver. Bottas is actually a very good driver. Um, he is consistently, at least in qualifying, or has been in the recent times, close to Hamilton, which is something that, well, I'd say that Rosberg initially had struggled with doing as well when he was Hamilton's teammate until, until the season where Rosberg won the mental game. I think where James is quite right in saying that a lot of the criticism is just because we don't want to see Hamilton winning all the time. You know, the purest Formula One fans, they, they want to see some sort of challenge. And, and Hamilton himself wants to see the challenge. Certainly from, from the way he always speaks about it, he, he's up for a challenge, he enjoys a challenge. Um, but I think where, where Bottas does fall short and where I think he would need to spend more time working is his mental game. Um, Rosberg showed us all that winning the mental game could, on evenly matched cars, win you a title. And, and there is a degree of ruthlessness that I think Bottas would need to develop uh, to bring into his racing um, regime that might actually assist him getting closer to Hamilton, certainly. But to hold him to the same standard, um, he's always going to fall short. Um, he is a good driver. He is in the right team to for him to continue being a good driver, certainly next season. And I think if he hooks up his talent with the mental game, we could see far more of a challenge to Hamilton, certainly next season. Yeah, I'm, I, I must say, like, even though, and your point about Rosberg being in an equal car, I still think that, yeah, something seemed a bit off the fact that Rosberg had very little in the way of mechanical retirements and Hamilton had just enough for him to just lose <laughs> the title. I don't know. I, I must say, though, even though I don't like him, I, Rosberg is still very much underrated. The fact, I think Bottas has shown that Rosberg really was at a, a really high level that a lot of people probably didn't give him enough credit for. 
whether or not whether or not he was actually ever champion worthy otherwise, I don't know. I'm not going to be. I'm not going to say, frankly, but I do think. I really I remember just before he renewed his contract for 2018, Verstappen was talking. Of, there was talk of him going to Mercedes. I was like, I do really want that. Like, even as a big Hamilton fan, I would love to see Verstappen and and Hamilton going head to head. That would be so great. It probably never Oh, Russell, yeah, yeah, Russell. He, he is a. The fact is, is that he nearly finished in the points over the weekend. And well, go on. if if I could just say something, a, a on Bottas and B on Russell. Um, with Bottas, it's the same old story. He's uh, FB one, FB two, FB three, Q one, maybe Q two, and then Q three and the race. Hamilton bosses it. Is this like um, the whole like Raikkonen thing in, the, in years gone by, where he was like fast in sector one, fast in sector two, and then he finishes sixth in the qualifying? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's just this the weekend. Bottas has Friday and half of Saturday, and then Hamilton has the race, and then in in the race, Bottas doesn't stick his nose down. It was like, oh my god, he's stuck. Yeah, he's actually stuck it down the inside and on the first stop, and then I think when it came to the first the the first restart. It was like, oh, Hamilton might have me at the slipstream here, so I've got to try and do something. And then, and then when, when the second restart happened, Hamilton had him, even though his car was smoking like a flambe. I don't know what was going on there. Um, and then when it comes to Russell, he's now thirty and over with his teammates. He's doing everything he can with his car. It's like, pick me, pick me, pick me. Oh no, well I've got us because he's pretty much the Felipe Massa, Rubens Barrichello of the Mercedes. Um, or Eddie Irvine to a certain extent. Um, just num- Mr. Number Two. I've I've got the I've got the most race-winning car in the world, um, and I've only won eight races in it in three and a half seasons. Says it all. <laughs> I, I I do think I think what Mercedes are doing is um, maybe Hamilton will do one more year. He'll retire, and then they'll have Russell come in to replace him, as opposed to going against him. Which I don't know. I would like to see. Russell in a good car. I think I remember. I remember when Hamilton was. There was a tweet being that was posted about him, and I think it was you, Chris, who said, "Oh, I wish he'd had been in like a Minardi or a, or a Spiker or something." And it, I think it would just have been the same thing that we say about Russell now. It's that, oh, he's just being wasted in that back of the grid car. Put him in a decent car, and because Russell is something else. Like he, he people seem to think that. He's overrated, and I'm just like every, every time the likes of like Leclerc and and uh, Norris and, and Albon perform well, it just reaffirms my faith in the fact that Russell will inevitably do very good. It's just a shame right now that he's having to haul a, a pile of garbage around at the back. Well, it's like Verstappen went to Russia Red Bull, uh, Schumacher went Benetton Ferrari. Yeah, but Benetton was already at the top. They he had one race in the Jordan. Well, and in the Jordan, the Jordan showed he showed what he could do in the Jordan. Then got then got the Bennett on drive. Hamilton straight to McLaren. Um, to sort of, I'm just saying, like all all their people showed their worth in lower cars, but he showed his lower worth in the support series. I'm just saying that he never had the same Minardi drive that some drivers did to build the way up, like Alonso did. He got he got the sorry Minardi if you're Minardi fans, the shitters, and went up. <laughs> he got the points in in the Minardi, and then built up from the Renault. To do well, and then hang on, hang on. Alonso never got points in Minardi, did he? I mean, you still got some impressive drive, obviously. You can't, it would yeah, be very true. difficult to score points. Um, I'm, 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 I might be getting the Weber drive confused, Mom. Uh, yeah, you're right. Fifth in, <laughs> in uh, Melbourne in 2002, wasn't it? Yeah, all right. Um, 2003 debut, Mom. So, another thing that happened during the race, Charlotte Clerk got a really great start, uh, initially, and uh, even after the second re- re- restart. At the first restart, he was in third, but then began tumbling like flies. Is that even a phrase? I think I may just made that up. Um, like flies. I, what, what is what, what phrase am I looking for there? Dropping like flies. Dropping like flies. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, he was passed by Stroll and then Ricardo, and then he went into the pits for hard tyres and did a like a few laps on that. But he was he was bleeding time. It was depressing, honestly. Like. 
Ferrari's one thousand Grand Prix. I said at the start, regardless of the result, it was always going to be a special race for them. The fact that they had a one thousandth race at the very track that they that they had like they owned since nineteen eighty eight. Um, did did, did you want to say something there, Ray? Yeah, I mean, um, going into this this race, um, uh, Ferrari fans around the world knew that it wasn't going to be a victory. Um, I, I joked with our little friends uh, Formula One chat group um, after the multiple restarts. Um, Ferrari might still win this race at this rate, <laughs> so never give up. Um, and uh, we, we joked about it. And, and as things started dropping, I'm like, hey, Leclerc is near the front. Okay, sixth is still near the front. But, but in all seriousness, um, yeah, the, the expectation of Ferrari doing well was very low. But that did not in any way detract from how special a weekend this was for them. And, and for Formula One, it was the first race all season where fans were allowed at the track. Yep. Um, and, and for me, that was huge on its own. The fact that this was Maranello, the, the, I'm sorry, Mugello, so close to Ferrari's home base at, at Maranello. Um, the celebrations that took place um, across the board and, and hearing from the drivers, um, everyone from Grosjean to Hamilton to Ocon all had something to say about Ferrari being DNA of Formula One and, and the other way around. And it, it has been a little bit of a silver lining and what has been a very dark year for Ferrari. Um, there was, despite the fact that Vessel was leaving, despite the fact that Ferrari were, were done poorly, there, there was still a lot of hope and joy and celebration of the Scuderia. And it is that same fighting spirit that I believe will see Ferrari back near the top again, perhaps 2022 onwards. Certainly if you look at the history, it took Schumacher a while to get the team up and running and going again to where they were. And then they were dominant. Um, again, they're in a slump right now. Yes, they've had the advantage of having Fernando Alonso, Sebastian Vessel, and Kimi Raikkonen all being in their car at different times and not won a title. Um, that, that may say a lot for their development, but they're never too far away from, from the top always. So I certainly think this weekend possibly could have been inspiring. I certainly did, uh, do hope it inspired all of the um, Ferrari workers back in the factory, they've had a torrid year, not just with the season, but with COVID-19 impacting Italy the way it did. Um, and for me and for a lot of people around the world, it was a very special weekend and a sight to behold. Yeah, couldn't, uh, couldn't have put it better myself. In fact, I remember um, Mercedes actually got the set, turned the safety car red for this weekend. And I'm like, that is great. Like, even if Ferrari, we, I think the fair majority of us love to hate them in a way. Because they they seem to be like the pantomime villains in a way, and um, but even so, sorry, Ray, am I? Am, am I, <laughs> I shouldn't have mentioned that, but yeah, I I I think we could all show some kind of appreciation for Ferrari, being as rich, having as rich a history they have, but we all want them to do well in some way. We all want the iconic red cars, or in this weekend's last weekend's case, the burgundy cars because they had a, a special livery, rem, reminiscent of some of their old liveries, um, to, to be up at the front. And they really, I hope that they, because they have seemingly swallowed their pride, their pride, freaking hell, pride. I don't, I don't know how to speak today, obviously. Um, and uh, accepted that it's going to be a while before we see them back at top. But I think they're, they're, they're in good hands uh, in the driver department. Charles Leclerc and Carlos Sainz in the future are definitely going to, point the steam in the right direction and what what they go through they'll be going through together as well all of Italy since uh, apparently Ferrari is more of a, of a religion there than, than the Pope <laughs> so um, can I just add their special, their special delivery their special liveries did better than Mercedes liveries at Germany last year they got oh, a double well. finish and, now, I mean, and they're the only other team besides Mercedes to do so yeah, well, to be fair, after Germany... You can clutch, you can clutch draws at that, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> they were the only after... two teams to get double points finishes, and they didn't end up in the wall twice. Mm. <laughs> Luca, I think this is in the same breath that we say we want Ferrari to do well. It's the same with people saying we want Williams to be back at the top. We wanted the name Salva to remain in Formula One. We're so glad to see McLaren being competitive again. There's something significant about these teams and, and the history and their meaning across the board that we want to see retained because they have formed 
the Formula One that we have all come to love and the reason we're all sitting here tonight. And so just as much as we want to see Ferrari doing well, I'm rooting for Williams back here. And, and I'm so glad to see what McLaren's going to do next season. And, and I think um, this is why this season is so exciting because we're getting to see unusual things happening. Mm. I mean, you said that we're all here for our love of Formula One. I'm here because uh, someone's kidnapped my uh, parents. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, sorry, I shouldn't joke about that. Um, well, there, there was a bit of a, a sort of um, a low period, not low period, but like a, a steady period throughout the, the remaining part of the race. We um, we saw Daniel Ricciardo um, pass Stroll in the pits for third place, um, and then that big crash happened for Stroll. He was going through the, the long, fast turn six and seven complex, the uphill section, fast corners, and then his tyre let out and that caused another red flag. And damn, that red, that was um, quite a hefty crash. I mean, we, we all, every time there is someone on these hefty crashes, we all sort of like sit on the edge of our seats with bated breath, like Leclerc, uh, Monza, and then the, the, the restart um, the safety car restart where they were all just pile driving into each other and Stroll sound, sounded very out of breath and apparently his car even caught fire when it was being recovered so well that that then caused another red flag so we've, we see three standing starts in an entire race that I think I saw someone unironically refer to this race as a race of three halves <laughs> like, mm, I don't think you've done maths mate well, I guess when you say a third, it's like three point three, 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 three recurring. Um, they want the free sprint race, isn't they? They're talking about that. And... <laughs> yes, yes. And in fact, coming back on to the third restart. So for the first two starts, hang on. Can you say same something there, Chris? Uh, I was just going to say that um, if you if you look at it, um, the Monza podium, uh, Gasly. Well, caused the third safety car. Uh, Science then caused the second safety car, and then Stroll caused the first safety car. So in podium order. <laughs> can't yeah. like that, can you? <laughs> um, unfortunately, um, luck does come around, um, but they're all safe and all well. Um, so then that's the most important factor. Definitely. Um, going going to third restart. We saw in the first two instances that the second place starter, in the first case Bottas and in the second case Hamilton, they were able to get much better starts. But it's a bit like, um, have you ever, guys, you've, I imagine Chris and James might have, but Rev, you've seen like races at Brands Hatch these days where because of like the inside of the grid, it's like dipped down slightly. So therefore when you get away, it's, a bit, it's often a bit difficult compared to the outside. Have you seen those? Hello? So I've only ever seen Brands Hatch on, on, on television since, uh, you know, I've not been there and living all the I way know, down here I in know. South Africa. But, but uh, yeah, I do understand sort of the, the concept of that. And now when I think back to the sort of Brands um, circuitry, yeah, I could actually see very similarity between that. Yeah, because like, they were like, the, the inside line, it seems, was getting like the worst getaway. But then on the third restart round, you've got... Yeah. Hamilton pulling away easily, Ricardo following, Bottas bottling it, bottling it again. And it's like, he can't get a break, can he? Like, even if luck is on his side, he's like, right, the second place has gotten the better start out of all the first two. This will be easy. Oh, bye, Ricardo. Did he not bog down there at the start? So I'm not sure what happened to him there, because I fully expected him to just, you know, floor it and, and go for it. And, you know, that's all she wrote. But, um, yeah, I'm not sure what happened with him there. I think uh, opportunity lost. This is So please don't overtake Lewis for the championship. Just like, uh, <laughs> just like um, what do you call it? It was, um, I thought, the Ferrari boat now. Uh, when it was like, I'll let, let him buy for the championship at Austria. Um, can't remember his name now. How, how dare I? Oh. It's Barrichello and Schumacher in Austria. Yeah, I can't, I've, I've actually forgot his name. He's the blooming FIA chairman now. Long Todd. That's Walter. the one. Yeah. How dare I forget his name? <laughs> <laughs> Michael Best for the championship. There we are. <laughs> I'm the impressionist here. Right, carry on. <laughs> we, 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 was there more yet to say there? I was just saying that it's just a, a, um, a mockery that there's 55 points behind because he didn't 
go anywhere near him. Um, I, I'm, I'm sorry, but I don't think he, he, Albon made soft tyres last longer than Bottas made medium tyres last during the middle stint of the race. I suppose it was because Bottas was pushing like hell because he was like, I, I had this win and now I've buggered it. Well, so was Albon. He was trying to catch up because he had a shocker of a second start. He was behind that, um, Ricardo and um, Stroll and Perez for, for a certain part. Well, the difference there being is that Albon went very long into his first stint and he wasn't pushing and then he was like pushing towards the end, wasn't he? Is that right? No, he was, he was pushing all the way, trying to get past the three of them, and then he was stuck behind the DRS train, Ricardo and uh, uh, Stroll. So he had, he had the dirty air as well. So he had an even worse situation. And Bottas was just because when it was, and then when it came to right, so and then carrying on from that, the he got past. So the, the bad start, he managed to get. Luckily, he managed to get past Ricardo because it was the, they had the pace all, all weekend, and then. Um, Ricardo was like, "Oh, going to get the tattoo for um, the Renault guy." Uh, it was like, "Brilliant, that's not a beatable." Um, so he was like, "Right, let's do this, ladies." That's, that's Ricardo's phrase, isn't it? Um, and then Albon came along, done the outside move, and then um, it was right after after Bottas, and then Bottas one point two seconds in one lap. So but they, they were sandbagging through the entire race. It was just, oh well. <laughs> <laughs> oh well indeed well this is how the race finished up Hamilton won Bottas second Hamilton got the fastest lap surprisingly considering the circumstances of this year first time they got maximum points in an entire weekend um, believe it or not with how Mercedes how dominant they are um, but I think we can all collectively agree the feel good story of the weekend Alexander Albon finally getting that long overdue first podium he was not anywhere near Lewis Hamilton throughout the entire race mm-hmm. And Hamilton, I, I jokingly said to my dad during the race, I wouldn't be surprised if Hamilton waited up for a bit just to prevent Albon from getting his podium again, because he's done it the last two times. So um, Albon, uh, we were literally just talking about this last week, James. Uh, move on to mm-hmm. here. Um, we were saying about how, because Gasly had won in the Alpha Tauri, and Albon had, had an absolute mare of a race, frankly. And we were talking about how your article, talking about how, Albon has, um, is not in as much danger as Gasly was in his position last year. And you said that it aged pretty badly. And now I reckon your comment about it being aged badly has aged badly as well. Yeah, I wonder if I should just stop, um, you know, having opinions on Albon. <laughs> Every time I would make one, it seems to go the other way. But um, I think, yeah, I'm, I was so glad that he got that podium because he really needed that result. And I think the way it came as well, I think, the fact that he had to battle back through from dropping back at the restart, the fact as well that Verstappen was out of the race, so Red Bull's race was on Albon's shoulders, and he proved when that happens, you can rely on him. I think I think ultimately that's going to do more for him than if he just sort of started in third and finished in third. Um, I, was, I was gutted when I saw him go around the outside of Ricardo because as a big Ricardo fan, I was really hoping... Um, and there'll be plenty of that really next to see him on the podium. Paris. Hopefully. Um, but yeah, I think, I think especially after last weekend, um, if Albon had had another race where Verstappen was out, Albon was Red Bull's sole hope, and another team below Red Bull in the pecking order had picked up the podium ahead of him, that would have been disastrous, I think, for his hopes. But yeah, I think, I think the chatter from the team seems to be very positive towards Albon. They seem to be, I know everyone's saying Gasly should get the seat back after winning the race, but they seem to, um, Red Bull seem to be behind Albon in a way they weren't behind Gasly. And I think this, a result like this, especially if it leads to more, it's only going to kind of galvanise that feeling and have Red Bull thinking, yeah, he's our guy. He might not be matching Verstappen session in, session out, but we're keeping him for next year, keeping him potentially for the future beyond there. Uh, Ray, do you think that Red Bull are going through a moment of... Um, like an, like an epiphany, like a clarity of we keep changing things too much. It's time to just allow things to settle. And a bit in a way, a bit like when Ferrari kept changing their top line personnel. We now have probably a, a group of people that everyone seems to think are clowns. I don't personally believe that, even if they make some silly errors sometimes. But they, Ferrari's higher ups have put a lot of 
faith and want to provide some stability with their current personnel. So do you think Red Bull now with their... Bloody hell, what was that? Do you think Red Bull now with their, um, their faith in Albon, regardless of how well Gasly goes or, or how bad a result Albon may have, do you think now is a, a moment that we see Red Bull starting to be a bit less impulsive with how they see their drivers? Um, I certainly think so. In fact, just before you ask the question, that's exactly the point I was going to bring up. Um, I, I do think that um, that uh, Red Bull have probably realized that they've chopped and changed quite often and they've been at liberty to do so. They've, they've had and still have a pool of drivers from which they, they can choose. Um, however, at AlphaTauri, they've got da Danny Kvyat. They've tried him before. They've got Pierre Gasly. They've tried him before. They've got Alexander Albon in the main team, in the Red Bull team. I think they might have realized, let's, let's give them a chance. There's potential here. The drivers need time to develop. The unrealistic standards of having the young driver come into a team and giving him six races, and if you're not up to scratch, you're out, we're going to get someone else in, does neither the driver nor the team um, any good. I, I think at somewhere along the line, they realize there's potential in Albon to go with this team into the future. Verstappen's now an old hand in Formula One, uh, relatively speaking, uh, if you compare him certainly to the Norrises and the Albons of, of the field. Um, and they need someone to grow with, with Verstappen. As Verstappen steps into more of a senior role in Formula One, I think Red Bull realized they, they need to develop their team with some stability. Um, they certainly need a stability so that the driver feedback on the car and, and, and ways to improve the car comes through. It's very difficult to be chopping and changing mid-season to be able to have that stable sort of feedback. So I certainly hope, and the indications are, that they will be sticking with Albon at least um, in the near future, which unfortunately leaves Gasly in a very difficult situation of being probably, and I'm, I'm going to put my neck on the line of this, the best performing driver this season, um, being in a midfield team for his near future as well. Um, Chris, have you got any uh, closing lines that we can then segue on to driver of the day? Uh, right, it's uh, pretty much well, um, albeit Kvyat's uh, probably the walking wounded out the uh, out the force you mentioned. Um, that I don't think he's, and which probably puts the Russian Grand Prix under threat. Um, but with with Albon, he's got he's got the sort of monkey off his uh, off his shoulders, so there might be more more to come. Um, he's just got to close the so-called four or five temps that he always has to Verstappen and he's been closer in the last two, three races so hopefully that you know, the podium will be the mindset the, to maybe the two, three temps so he'll be the one where also Red Bull might have the chance to actually get Verstappen closer um, to Mercedes as well where they can start doing tactics as well with the uh, strategy so it's not a case of right Verstappen's fighting Bottas and Hamilton it's Verstappen and Albon are fighting both of them as well so we'll see. Uh, James did you look like you wanted to say something there? Yeah I just wanted to chime in because I, I fully agree with what I was saying about they've got to stop chopping and changing drivers like this because um, was it I'm going to put my neck on the line as well and I'm going to say, was it Einstein who said, and hope that I'm not trying to say a really smart quote and misquoting it, <laughs> but the definition of madness is doing the same thing over and over again and hoping for different results. No, that's and... the villain from Far Cry 3. <laughs> oh, I don't know where I originally ended from. But yeah, yeah you got a major point there. Yeah, because since they brought Kvyat in at the start of 2015, they've had, um, is it four new drivers that they brought up at quite short notice from... Toro Rosso and of those four only Verstappen has really kind of hit the targets that Red Bull would normally expect of their drivers and a one in four success rate isn't they're not great odds um, unless it's Grand Prix that you've entered and won that, yeah. that's <laughs> but yeah they brought Kvyat in he didn't um, he didn't do what the team wanted he seemed out of his depth they brought Verstappen in won a race brilliant brought Gasly in was out of his depth they brought Albon in, and for a lot of people, the jury's still out on whether he's um, whether he's up to scratch or not. So I think, yeah, they have got to kind of look at that approach and say, actually, that's not really had the success we thought it would have done by now. So maybe we should actually stop and give our drivers more time to develop, whether that's keep them in the senior team and give them more time to settle into that, 
or keep them in the junior team for longer and give them more time to find their feet in Formula One. But yeah, I, I so hope that after Albon's podium, they think, like you said, that this is a moment where they think, yeah, we need to make a change to our approach now. I uh, just want to bring up a point that you made there, Chris, that apparently it would mean that the Russian Grand Prix is under threat. Um, <laughs> the fact is, is that Russia's probably not going to be leaving the F1 calendar for some time. And even when Kvyat lost his seat for 2018 and they brought they brought in Sergei Sorokin, pro- Russia's going to have enough money to burn to get an F1 driver in there. And we've got Robert Schwartzman, who might enter F1 as early as next year. And apparently, I'm now hearing, and I think all of us would collectively hope for this, they're going to be moving the Russian Grand Prix over to Igora Drive, which is a circuit that was meant to be hosted in DTM this year, which apparently is much better than Sochi. I mean, we could only hope that. Yeah, well, we won't delve too far into that. Uh, we should probably end the episode now, otherwise we'll be here for two hours. So, everyone, uh, oh, actually, just quickly, do we want to see Magello back next year? Uh, James? Um, oh, I don't know. Um, <laughs> I, I be honest, I was fully expecting the race this weekend to be quite a dull one. Um, so I, d- I don't know if this was just a freak result or whether Magello actually would always have great races. So I'm going to sit on the fence and say I have no idea. Rhea? Yes, Magello next season. And James, it's the only way we're going to determine if this was a freak result is if we can test it against next season. That's a so, very yes, good point. <laughs> bring it back on the calendar. House full of Tafosi. You could not ask for something more exciting. I think for when we do the Portuguese Grand Prix debrief, I'd want, I'd want someone remind me to ask, because we probably don't have time now, These we'll have the verdict out on these tracks, which we never had a hope in hell of hosting F1 before this pandemic happened, the whole rescheduling, if, um, we're, how we could see them integrated into next year, if they even are. Um, Chris, what do you make of Mugello? Do you reckon it should be in F1 next year? It should be like a yo-yo, like, say, every now and then. Um, you'd have, like, say old school tracks like Imola and Magello coming on um, and with that unfortunately with the podcast going on a bit longer than normal yeah. I'm going to have to uh, sign off so that's okay. uh, uh, Chris, Chris driver of the yeah. day quickly soon before you oh, leave uh, driver of the day um, probably have to give it to our one for finally hitting All right. his uh, goal of the podium um, and then probably the clerk for actually Getting in the points for so for Ari, I think the cheer about with the fans in the in the stage in the uh, on the grandstand because he had about yep all right we'll see you thousand in there but all the best <laughs> and uh, pick cast next time soon all right bye, now. bye yeah Chris had to to leave early um, but we are ending off anyway so whilst we've just got his final bits of uh, notes there uh, Raya your driver of the day. Uh, you, you've, you've muted. Hang on. You have to start again. Um, can you hear me now? Yes, can we can. Yeah. Give me Raikkonen, my driver of the day. Finishing ninth above, it works for Ari. And, and I know people are going to joke and say that's not much, but he still finished ninth. He was also involved in two of the crashes and somehow still managed to bring that car home. Um, and every one of us is a Kimi fan, even if we don't say we're a Kimi fan. So Kimi is driver of the day in my books. Yeah, like, the, I didn't touch upon this, but the fact is that Raikkonen was involved in, like, t- two or three incidents, and he's, his his car was impenetrable. Like, you, 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 <laughs> I think the only thing harder than Raikkonen's car is dried Weetabix. <laughs> um, James, your driver of the day. Um, I'm going to pick uh, Ricardo, I think, because he was, again, like I said earlier, I'm a bit biased, but um, he put in a solid drive, and it's such a shame he missed out on the podium. Um, maybe just because the Red Bulls are faster car as well. Um, yeah, I'm going to say Ricardo. Albon, very close second. For me, I have to give it to Russell. The fact I was absolutely beside myself with the fact that he was legitimately holding on to a P9 points position. Mm. And he lost it at the start. And his, it, it was like, I remember talking on the Indy 500 podcast about like having like 195 laps and then five laps from the end, um, like bottle it and have no effort, no no real way of able to get that result back. Uh, I just, I felt, I felt gutted for him. He nearly came, he came so close to scoring points. I wonder if um, Russell's going to just go without points a bit like how Hulkenberg never got a podium in Formula One. I, I would sincerely hope not. Oh, right. Well, 
Uh, since Chris has um, left early, I'm going to bring up his Twitter so I can mention it. Hope he doesn't hate me for this. Um, since we are going to be mentioning our social medias, uh, James, do you want to give yours out first? Yep, I'm on Twitter at James16Matthews. Rhea? I'm on Twitter at Rhea Morara. Uh, I, Luca, I'm on Twitter at RedLuca56. And uh, Chris, apologize. I know you're probably going to do it anyway, um, <laughs> but it's C underscore Lordy91. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for listening to the Pitcast. Uh, we will return for the, um, the debrief on the Russian Grand Prix, which, well, I would say it would probably be a ball fest as it normally is, but knowing how the last two races have gone, it probably might be wild. <laughs> It'll probably be like the Valencia 2012 of Sochi. So yeah, until then, everyone, thank you very much for listening. I have been Luca, I've been here with James and Rhea, and Chris is on the here anymore. <laughs> and um, we will see you out on track. <laughs>